Roxy, how do you like your eggs? Mmm. Let me count the ways. Scrambled? Poached? In an eggs benedict? Fried? I like them all. Is there a type of egg you don't like? I don't love a baked egg. Like a quiche. <laughs> well, what about a frozen egg? Oh. Oh, we're going there. We are going there, y'all. Buckle up. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women navigating calling, career, and around every baby stroller on the sidewalks of New York. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. One thing that our listeners might not know about us, Roxy, is that we are both spiritual mothers of a sort, godmothers, to be more precise. That's right. I have one lovely little goddaughter. She somehow has like red curly hair and blue eyes, even though neither of her parents, as far back as they can remember in their families, have any red hair. So that's sweet. Thanks, God. I also have a goddaughter, Ruthie, who is now, I can't believe it, she will be nine in December. Wow. And it's so fun to like dote on her. Yeah. And her and her mom came to visit me in New York three Christmases ago. And we went to like Rockefeller Center and the Nutcracker. And it was just so fun to see New York through a child's eyes and like spoil her as like a little girl. That is sweet. I also have a three-year-old nephew who... Is he still in a dinosaur stage? Um... Yeah, or anything that, like, growls. Mm. And I definitely... I mean, he is the axis around which the Beatty family now spins. Right, right. And I definitely feel the distance from my family now that he is in the picture, more so than I did before. Yeah. I feel like I'm missing some really special moments in his life. Yeah. And as much as I absolutely love being an aunt, I also would say, you know, just being around children reminds you of, reminds me anyway, of complicated feelings we might have about our own desires to have children, whether that's possible, whether the window is closing. That obviously creates a lot of anxiety for me and for a lot of other women in our age bracket, let's say. We're just going to say there's a bracket, we're in it, and in that bracket, lots of women experience some anxieties. Thank you for making that so broad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm actually going to a lot less baby showers these days as my friends sort of age out of the super young baby stage. Mm -hmm. I still have a few friends who will probably have babies, but they're, you know, they're younger than me. Which is its own like kind of crazy thing, you know, like almost all of my friends' kids are 9, 10, 11, 12, like they're entering like totally different stages of life at this point, which is kind of bizarre, especially when I think like, oh, that's the age of kid I could have. I mean, technically, we could be the parents of 18-year-olds going off to college. Technically, we could be grandmothers at this point. Well, you know, I think I'm just going to shut down my laptop for the day. And <laughs> we could be pregnant grandmothers. We could be. That was ha- that happened in one of those books that I remember reading as a kid, like a, J- a Janet Oak book. Why have I never thought about this before? I mean, 
for better or worse, the window of either of us being pregnant grandmothers, I am very confident in saying has closed. Yes. Even putting aside our current life situations. I don't think we'll ever be pregnant grandmothers. A lot of science would have to happen. (laughs) Science would really have to speed up in like (laughs) the next three to five years. Roxy, would you say that you grew up wanting to be a mom? Like when you think back as a child, looking ahead to your adult life, was being a mom in your imagination for you? Oh, yeah. I remember in high school, especially being like really intrigued by the maternity clothes and like kind of being excited at the idea of being pregnant. Like just, I think it just was fascinating to me, even at that age, that like a woman's body could do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think, I mean, it's complicated because it was not a... I don't think I grew up in a family or like an environment that was really like motherhood is a is the calling or the thing for mom for women to do which I feel like you know a lot of my friends who grew up in more evangelical households or churches um, that was you know that was the calling that they heard all the time um, the highest good that a woman could do. Mm-hmm. And I didn't grow up that way. In fact, my parents waited a long time to have kids. I mean, they'd been married 14 years when they had us and they weren't really sure if they wanted kids or not. It was very important to them that we had, my sister and I had aspirations outside of motherhood. And I even heard them say, you know, which I would go back and maybe like have a conversation with my parents about this, but I even heard them say a few times because they were school teachers, you know, like kids that they had like had in high school girls who were great students Mm. who you know maybe went to college and then and then had babies and then became stay-at-home moms like I mean that was like a disappointment to my parents that that they felt like those Mm. women should be out in the workplace you know and that it was like almost a waste to stay home um so I think for me it was I wanted it and I always imagined it would happen but I also had all these other goals Mm -hmm. It sounds like if you've prepared all this time to go into the workforce, why wouldn't you apply what you've learned? Whereas being a stay-at-home parent, I guess, is perceived as you're not applying yourself or you've opted out of something that you prepared for. Right. And I think that those are narratives I adopted as their child um, and felt Mm -hmm. like, like, a career was the great goal, you know? But I also always thought I would have a family too. I just always thought like I would Mm -hmm. be a working mom like my mom was, you know? Um, And I think now I would challenge that exactly. Like I think there's a lot of value in staying home and raising kids. And I think there's a lot of value in going to into the workplace. Like I think there's, it's not black and white, you know, that's not, those are not like the only two choices that you have as a woman. Right, right. But I think maybe for a previous generation, those options were probably a little bit more hardened. Exactly, exactly. And I think a lot of women fought really hard, you know, to be able to be in the workplace. And the workplace wasn't ready for women to share, to to have both motherhood and workplace. It's still complicated, which we... I'm sure we'll get into like that is not there is still not like, oh, women have figured out how to have it all. We have not. And a lot of that is still workplaces that are not offering flexible 
time or parental yeah. paid. Li- I mean, there are still and a, a government lot of- that doesn't really seem to support maternity leave. And right, there are all these structural issues that make it hard for women to stay engaged in the workplace once they have children. Yeah. Um, I think as many of our listeners know, um, I was married and actually kids is part of the reason I'm not married anymore. I hit an age, um, we'd been married about 10 years and I was like, okay, I'm, would like to have kids. I'm ready. And he had really changed his mind about wanting kids and didn't Mm. anymore. And that was not the only thing that happened and not the only reason that we got divorced, but it was, it was a big factor. And I, I had a, another relationship that kind of was dissolved also for the same reason in my mid-30s where I still felt like I would like to at least have that possibility open and like he really didn't want to have kids. So I've been through some, I don't even know what to call it. I've just, you know, I think that, that that's mm-hmm. been a journey of like, of like longing for me that's gone unmet um, and unshared. Um, and... Mm. Obviously, we've we've all talked about this with our friends, especially other single friends. Um, you know, and I have a lot of friends who have frozen their eggs um, and who have left open that option or wanted to keep that option open for as long as possible. And I haven't done that. And I do feel like there's maybe a reason. Like, I, I think, mm. you know, I think if I really, really wanted kids, I would have kids at this point in some mm. way. If that was like, the highest priority for me. Like I think it is for a lot of women. Backing up a little bit, (laughs) there's a lot to respond to. It totally makes sense to me that your desire or longing for children and having that longing not be met was tied up in relationships Mm -hmm. that did not unfold how you would have wanted because of different desires or life goals. And so that longing has the tinge of like almost a double loss mm-hmm. because right. of the dissolution of those relationships, like big important relationships in your life, which I think is probably true for a lot of women that mm-hmm. the child question is connected to the marriage or relationship question. Yeah. And yeah, I don't want to start out as a single mom, you know, like I don't want to mm-hmm. do it that way. Freezing my eggs as a keep safe mm-hmm. for the possibility of a future desire to do IVF. I don't have, it's hard for me to talk about. Mm-hmm. It has not been a life choice that has made sense to me for me. In me saying that, I'm not, make, I'm not making a universal claim. It just, oh, yeah. It's, it has not been a life choice or path that has made sense for me. I have a few friends who have done it and I think it was like a really good decision for them. And, um, and I, I understand why they did it. Um, but similarly, like I, I, I felt like, well, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if I just didn't want to face it, you know, (laughs) because I do think that like, once you do it, like that's like, you're creating a decision that has to be made at some point, like whether you're going to, um, thaw out those eggs, choose a sperm donor, make it happen, you know? Um, like you're kind of, you're making the decision super real at that point. Mm-hmm. And maybe by not making a decision, you're also making a decision, but it felt less like I was making a decision. Mm-hmm. It's also really expensive. Yes. But I think, I mean, I think I've mostly accepted that I won't have biological kids at this point. Yeah. 
I know that intellectually for myself, but when just hearing you say it right there, I was like, oh, right. It's a really big thing. It is. You're a few years younger than me, so so you don't have to say it yet. <laughs> but it is also, it is unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just the It's fact so possible of, for me. It just feels very unlikely. It feels very unlikely. I'm thinking back to a conversation that I had that I did not want to have, but I found myself in it mm-hmm. <laughs> with, I think, a well-meaning older Christian woman at like a Christian publisher's conference. We sat next to each other at lunch and I was talking about my work and was really excited about it. I was in my mid to late 20s mm-hmm. and she said something like, I'm not going to remember the quote exactly, but she said something like, just be careful because you know, you could find yourself on this path and then wake up 20 years later and realize like you wanted a family and you invested in the wrong place. I mean, she was essentially like warning me not to. And she was, is a single Christian woman. Right. Almost as if to say, don't make the mistake that I did. Right. First of all, don't project your stuff on me. Like, I don't know you. If you want to bring in spiritual language, you and I might have very different life paths. And like, I don't think that everybody is called to be a parent. And I think the older that I get, I I see that comment. It was so annoying to me when I was 27. And now at 38, I'm like, well, she she was describing something real. I don't think I should have taken her up on her advice in that moment and be like, oh, you're right. I should just quit my job and go seek out a husband. I mean, (laughs) what's the takeaway from this advice that you're giving me? And at the same time, I do think that, you know, she was probably speaking from a sadness in her own life that was real. Yeah. And I guess that this to me is part of the challenge of the space that I find myself in right now, which still feels a little limbo, a little liminal. Like it's not like a totally closed window, but it feels like a mostly closed window. But I think the challenge of being there is honoring that loss and grieving it as a loss that I feel because I did want kids. Like I'm not somebody who like wanted to be child-free. And so being able to honor and grieve that loss while also not getting stuck in it and feeling like, I have a lesser life because of it or telling another 25-year-old woman (laughs) that I'm sitting Mm -hmm. next to somewhere like, don't waste your life, you know, don't waste your chance because I don't feel that way about my life. Like I feel like there's a lot of fullness to it. And I think I want to be able to embrace the life that I have and live it with a fullness and with an embrace of what I can have because I don't have kids without Mm -hmm. pretending like I never wanted them or without like never letting myself grieve something that I honestly had wanted, you know? It sounds like a lot of emotional labor. Oh man, emotional labor. The work of women. I mean, it sounds like that is a very tender place to try to hold, to be honest with yourself about real grief to not be like, oh, never mind. I I never really wanted that. Right. Like to actually name the thing, but not to wallow in a sense of, and because I don't have this really big thing, I can't be grateful for the life that I have or find fullness and meaning there. That is that is real. And mm-hmm. like there are in saying no or having the no said, 
there are genuine yeses that you can say. Right. That you wouldn't have been able to say if you did have children. That is real. What about you? (laughs) I guess I grew up thinking that I would be a mom Mm -hmm. only because all of the women in my life were moms. Right. In the same way that I just assumed that I would be married. Like, Mm -hmm. this is just what you do when you become an adult. Mm -hmm. I do remember a sense that in college and in my 20s, I was very focused on my career and very satisfied in that. And to this Mm -hmm. day, I'm still genuinely very satisfied in that. Like, that is a real core thing about me Mm -hmm. and how I'm wired. I think the sting of being child-free was the most pronounced from ages 28 to 35 living in a heavily Christian suburb. When everyone was having babies. Yes. Like you were at the age that everybody else around you, your peers, were having children. It was, I would genuinely say like normative, not Mm -hmm. just like Mm -hmm. statistically, but like this is what you do. Mm -hmm. And I was in, I was living in a place that has just strong spiritual overlays around motherhood and the calling to motherhood. And I never felt more up to this point, like I had to defend I've never felt more like I had to defend my life in in that place. Mm -hmm. And maybe that you had to combat an idea that you were lacking. A hundred percent. You know, because I think that it wasn't necessarily your decision. Like you weren't like, I don't want to be married and I don't want kids right now. Like that wasn't necessarily where you were, but you did want to get married and eventually have kids. And so I think mm-hmm. that that, you know, that creates its own sort of tension and dissonance and mm-hmm. a feeling of like, I don't have what I want yet and everybody else has it, which is different than feeling like you're claiming something, you know, like you're staking your claim of like, this is who I want to be. Right. Because I felt very much like lacking an agency in my own life. Right. And also in that time was like pretty angry with God, Mm -hmm. rightly or wrongly. I just felt like, why are you giving these good things to everybody around me? Yeah. I don't understand. I don't understand why I have this longing that I think is for a good thing that is not being met and I don't know how to meet it. And where are you in that? Scott Real. Ugh. What are some of the things you feel like you've been able to say yes to because you don't have kids? Um, sleep? <laughs> no. I mean, yes, yeah. but that, that's not the, that's not at the top of the list. Like, I will do anything for 10 hours of sleep every night. Although I will say, I do think some people, like, I think that people can parent even if they're not naturally suited for it. I think a mm-hmm. lot of this you learn, yeah. you, you know, you yeah. you become what you need to be for your family or you recognize that like you're really saying no to things that you feel like are crucial to you and it's hard. Like your experience of parenting is hard. I do think about, of course, going back to the workplace and the accommodations that workplaces make or don't make mm-hmm. for parents of young children, I guess it's not lost on me that I have a leadership position in my job and have gotten to do a lot of like creative work on the side. Yeah. 
because I I have that time and energy. Now I also know I also know women who do a lot of work and are also raising children. I'm like, oh, maybe yeah. I'm just lazy. Like maybe <laughs> I'm actually not. You know, like maybe. But I yeah, yeah I think about not just day to day work, but like creative additional work that I've been able to say yes to. I mean, it is really hard for me to imagine raising young children in New York City for all sorts of logistical reasons. Certainly not by myself. Oh my gosh. I do not know how single moms do it. I don't know how single moms do it anywhere, but I think if you are a single mom, like it makes a big difference to have family nearby. I sometimes think about like carrying a stroller upstairs, which I know women do all the time, but just... There are these logistical things about having a baby in a city that I can't wrap my mind around. Yeah. I do feel like I've been able to say yes to a lot of friendships with a lot of different types of people. And I'm not saying that moms can't do the same. I just feel like I genuinely experience a fullness in my life. And a lot of it is because of the friendships that I've been able to create and sustain over time. And when I say that, I'm not saying like, and all my single girlfriends get to go out and do whatever we want. I no. I have friends who are married with kids. I have friends who are married without kids. I have friends who are single at different ages. Some who don't want to be married with kids. Some who desperately do. And like mm-hmm. that to me, there's a richness there that I feel free to invest in those friendships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think... I. I would pretty much just say all the same things when I think about what I've been able to say yes to because I don't have kids. You know, I think creative work, work outside of work, work. (laughs) But I also like (laughs) don't think that that's all life is. Housework. Yeah, housework. My house is so much cleaner. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I also think that that is often that's like the binary that you get is either like Mm -hmm. motherhood or marketplace and like you work or you have kids. And I think that that's is not something I want to fall into either. Like I want to be able to, Mm -hmm. as we said, like I want to invest in friendships. I want to invest in the church in a way that maybe I couldn't if I had kids. I want to think, I am always trying to think about ways that I can give something to the world outside of just my work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that that can and does look different if you don't have kids. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about resisting the motherhood marketplace binary. One, because of course, so many women exist in both spheres, but Mm -hmm. also because it's what a capitalist society wants women to feel like they have to fit into. Oh, yeah. And I don't actually think the marketplace is the counter to motherhood. No. And this is where like the tropes about like the sad single woman who's like spent all her life working at Vogue and dies alone. And she got what was coming to her because she wanted money. (laughs) (laughs) So selfish. Yes. All the stereotypes are unhelpful. And I think what I hear you saying is that actually you don't want to fill up all of this theoretical spare or open time with more work. Like what you actually want to invest in is relationships, community, institutions, like giving the world something. Yeah. And I think the older I've gotten to, the more that I've recognized, like the only thing that wins in that scenario where we tell women that the marketplace is this is this great good above motherhood or like, oh, that's that's the feminist like mm-hmm. value. The only thing that wins is capitalism. <laughs> 
I have a feeling we're not the only ones who are not too happy with the motherhood marketplace false binary. Yeah, and I think the pandemic only made it worse. Our guest today is kind of an expert at breaking down false binaries. Erin Lane is the author of a fascinating book called Someone Other Than a Mother, flipping the scripts on a woman's purpose and making meaning beyond motherhood. What we celebrate really matters. Um, And in some ways and in some places, motherhood has been over-celebrated or celebrated so much to the detriment of other achievements, other tiny victories, um, other milestones in a woman's life. Our conversation with Erin is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. From nationalism to nuns, RNS covers it all. And if you like what we're doing at Say by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. You can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We want to hear from you, and we will reply eventually. Well, we're happy today to be joined by Erin Lane, the author of Someone Other Than a Mother. And um, we are so glad you could join us. Thanks for being here, Erin. Oh, thanks for having me. This is going to be good. Good to see you, Erin. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Caitlin. I guess to start, and we'll just jump right in, how did you come to a point where you recognized that you didn't want to have biological kids, especially given you know, as you talk about in your book, that that's sort of the default life script for women. So um, I probably noticed I was wired not like everyone else. You know, when I was in around high school, when people Mm -hmm. started talking about um, plans and dreams and hopes for the future, and I was very, very cliche about wanting a husband. Um, I had wrote a want ad for a future husband when I was like eight um, I was very committed, um, very committed to that particular um, fairy tale script. But for some reason, when it came to the question of children, I just like the picture went blank. I mm. literally just like didn't have an imagination for it, which is strange because I grew up in the American Midwest. This was the default. Most mm-hmm. people were having biological families, seemingly enjoying their nuclear lifestyles. And I had plenty of pictures around me, but none of them felt compelling or compatible Mm. with who I Mm -hmm. knew myself to be as someone who loves her solitude, loves deep Mm. bodily autonomy, um, loves sleep, um, Mm -hmm. doesn't love medical things. Right, like there were just a lot <laughs> Which I've of heard reasons comes into play when you have a child coming out of your body. Right, I was the, like the tetanus shot seemed pretty terrible. I'm not sure I want to willingly welcome more. So there were a lot of both limits. On the one hand, um, I felt more limited in what um, I was able to imagine mm-hmm. and like get excited by when it came to the picture of biological parenting. But then also, I was just so curious and delighted by so many other things. And, Mm. you know, it's funny, like, we don't ask women, like, how did you know you didn't want to be an air traffic control operator? (laughs) Right? You're like, I don't know. I just didn't think about it. And I thought Mm. about a lot of other things that really kept me up at night in some profound 
and super fun ways. And that wasn't one of them. And I didn't mm-hmm. realize I would have to give an account for that in mm-hmm. such a way until I went to college in the South and met up against a very particular evangelical Christian culture mm-hmm. uh, around marriage and motherhood. Right. Yeah, let's talk about <laughs> that because it was definitely true in the Christian subculture where I lived before moving to New York. And it was all about feeling on the outskirts of a very particular script, not just of womanhood, but of Christian womanhood. Mm -hmm. So talk about how you experienced not just alternative scripts that maybe just felt like this isn't appealing to me, but also if you don't want this script, there's something wrong with you as a woman and especially as a Christian woman. It really wasn't until college um, when people began thinking seriously about life partners and vocations and how they were talking about those that I realized there really was this idea that parenthood was a universal calling. Mm -hmm. Motherhood in particular was probably going to be your highest and truest calling. Um, And in the end, this was going to be the legacy you left. This was going to be your crowning achievement you are going to die to self as Jesus did, but to your children. So Mm -hmm. in what ways could this understanding of being someone more than a mother is actually liberating for all women, not just childless women? Yes, 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 yes. These mother scripts are what I was confronted with as a childless person. And then I became a parent and I was like, oh, I'm actually even more offended by these scripts that are levied at the childless and child-free and those making unlikely families because now I am a parent. Now I am supposed to have um, it figured out, be mature, um, be giving, Mm. be certain, be into 8 by 10 photographs, right? Like I'm supposed to like become. (laughs) You would never. I'm so not into 8 by 10 photographs. It's too much. I don't need your face (laughs) that big. And so it occurred to me that these mother scripts, which are meant to venerate motherhood, mm-hmm. actually whitewash it um, mm-hmm. so that those who are not mothering feel like they're missing out on something really profound. And those who are mothering might feel like they're supposed to be having really profound experiences and they're not. And mm-hmm. either way, we all are losing because we are not creating room for women to tell the tender, surly truths about their lives Um, like, Mm -hmm. I don't like 8 by 10 photographs, but I really like sitting in my crazy creek watching my 12-year-old play tennis. And, like, this is a nuance that we can talk about Mm -hmm. um, when we are not talking in universals, when we speak for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're totally right that this veneration of motherhood actually benefits no one except for the, well... Maybe men. Hmm. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Maybe men. A little. Maybe the survival of humanity. But I was going to say, I'm sure that there are women. Actually, I know that I have met a few of them. I don't know what their lived experience of motherhood is like, but the way that they talk about motherhood with other women is a kind of venerating posture. But even then, I want to say... I I know, I, I believe that your life is more complicated than this, even if you don't. Well, I like to say I never want to take away mm-hmm. how someone makes meaning. But I would love to add to how you make meaning. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? So, like, if you find motherhood to be the most deeply meaningful thing you've ever done, good for you. 
Um, and mm-hmm. that sounded snarky, but seriously, good for you. I'm happy you're happy. Happiness is not a talent of mine, so I don't quite understand that about anything. <laughs> but good for you. And can I suggest to you that there are lots of other ways, or at least a handful of ways you could explore in making meaning that could also be satisfying. Mm-hmm. And that just because you find this one thing deeply meaningful doesn't mean other people are missing out. Yes. Right? right. Again, just like speak for yourself. Motherhood has been deeply transformative for you. Yes. You felt like you were once lost and now you're found. That's that's your narrative. Let's talk about it. Tell me about that. Um, but what I'm not interested in are these universal. Yes. Generalizing yous. No one wants to get you'd. I hate, right, the mother of all mother scripts. You don't know love until you become a mother um, mm. because it's irrefutable. And then it makes you feel like crap on the other side of motherhood when you're like, ah, maybe I'm not feeling it. Did I not Did I not get the mm-hmm. memo? Like, am I a little bit defective? That I feel like this love is different and the same, that this love is troubling and expansive, that this love is infuriating and um, enlarging just like all the others. Um, mm-hmm. right. So, so that is what I would say to the people who do find motherhood, mm-hmm. uh, deeply meaningful and feel proud, feel proud to be venerated in that way. Great. I don't want to take that from you, but let me just suggest that there are lots of ways for a life to flourish yours yeah. and mine. Yeah. It's only in the ranking or in the, mm-hmm. something is higher than, or something is exclusive. If it's this, it's not this. So what is true for me has to be true, not only for you who I'm speaking to and you shooting all over, but also all women everywhere. And I, if, if a friend is saying, you know, looking back on my life, I can say motherhood was one of the greatest gifts to me I want to celebrate that. And I believe that it's only when the there's like a semicolon and comma, you should also want what I have or because you don't have what I have, you are missing out on a fundamental human experience that diminishes your humanity because you don't have the thing I have. No one, no one wants to be told that. (laughs) No one wants to be told that. And it's sociologically not true. Um, mm-hmm. right. That there, I am so encouraged by the research on the elderly <laughs> and what at the end of their lives they look back on and, um, find meaningful, what actually protects them from misery and old age. Right. And it's actually not, it's not your nuclear family. It's friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, friendship is the most democratic love. I think, um, friendship is the love that can kind of be an umbrella for lots of different kinds of loves. Um, friendship is actually scientifically proven to be um, potentially longer lasting and better for your health um, as you age um, into than having children, than having children, than having family. Mm-hmm. Um, and and further, people that don't have children, um, if it was an intentional choice, which it's not for everyone. Um, find more and more confidence and more and more happiness the older they get. That really this season of life I'm in, mid to late 30s, mid to early 40s, um, is the the pressure cooker, is actually Mm -hmm. when the childless and the child-free experience the most loneliness. It's Mm -hmm. not when they're older, like everyone Mm. tells them. It's now when all of our friends are retreating into the domestic sphere in a way that we feel like is hard to access them for a time. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It's hard to talk about things in common for a time. It is hard to talk about our lives 
um, in a particular way that doesn't feel like an affront or a judgment mm-hmm. of theirs. Right, right. I feel like even as we've been talking, I've watched each of us kind of trying to walk a fine line between talking about our own decisions without discrediting or minimizing or even insulting other people's decisions. So like, I think that often the the temptation, even if you've chosen not to have kids or if you've been unable to have kids or whatever, is like then to sort of... Um, to sort of define yourself by the thing you rejected. Like, like what I did was good or like having kids is, or living in the suburbs or all of these other things is like somehow less than, you know, um, or, you know, you fell for the script or you aren't a good feminist or whatever. Like we all do that. Right. And so I think I'm wondering as, you know, as you're working on the book and even as you've sort of moved through different stages of, of sort of thinking about this as first child free and now like, an adoptive parent, how do you embrace the script of your life without rejecting the other, the scripts other people have, other women in particular have chosen, but instead like be supportive of both or foster that kind of supportive spirit? You know, as I've been talking about this book and doing interviews, I do get the question, like, what do you want to say to traditional mothers? And I've tried to, I've tried to answer that, but I was going to bed the other night and I was like, you know what? This conversation keeps getting put on women to have between women. Yeah. Yeah. As if we are going to talk enough about our lives, as if we are the problem, as if we are the ones that are just being shady towards one another. Mm-hmm. When really, right, there are these very, as you named earlier, Roxy, patriarchal systems and structures that mm-hmm. would have us compete against one another, that would mm-hmm. have us separated and feeling alienated from one another, that would disenfranchise us and then want to keep us separate and from organizing. Yes, I love a good personal story, but I also want to say, look, this idea that motherhood is the highest calling is a very new idea in the history of the church. And Mm -hmm. let's look at why and who it benefited to Mm -hmm. go from being essentially like an ascetic early church where like Paul was like, if you have to have sex, okay, to this focus on the family (laughs) where your home and the people that lived under it were your little church, were Mm -hmm. where you Mm -hmm. were going to do your most best and beautiful work. And I think that's the more interesting Mm -hmm. stuff to me is I'm so much more interested in women coming together to say, who does it serve to actually keep us locked in these conversations about our choices when Mm -hmm. actually there are these very insidious systems and structures um, who want us mm-hmm. to believe a certain thing about who we are and want us to believe a certain thing about the incompatibility of our lives with other people who've been disenfranchised. Yeah, I don't think men are like, I really feel called to fatherhood. And their guy friends are like, wow, are you are you judging my choice to <laughs> yes! not be? If they're like, cool, dude. I mean, yeah. I just don't think men are... <laughs> forced to live into these false binaries or debate or compete in the same way that women are, obviously. (laughs) And that should tell us something. That should tell us that it's not an individual, um, it's not individual work we each have to do around this, although, of course, that will always be there. But there's Mm -hmm. something potentially more powerful um, about looking at the 
cultural narratives rather than simply the personal ones alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to do. That's what I try to do in the book. Every chapter um, is a crappy script, um, a crappy cultural saying um, that mm-hmm. women have been handed, and then trying to write a more generous alternative. Mm-hmm. Not to say that if that script is deeply meaningful for you, it's not true, but to say, look, I think there are actually ways in which we can talk about this that are more inclusive that will mm-hmm. actually soften the edges that often women feel in conversations with one another. And that can really direct our attention to the things worth organizing our time around. Because Lord have mercy, I'm overwhelmed by everything. I have very limited capacity. I'm a low-capacity woman. Um, so please tell me how to focus my energy on the things that are actually going to create flourishing for me and, mm-hmm. and my sisters. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk a little bit about that in a, in a more practical way. Like, I think we've talked a lot about the ideas of how to sort of trouble the ideas, but how do we in very practical ways support each other as women in our choices around parenting or not parenting? How do we really just show up for one another? I can't help but turn to history for some inspiration. The origin of Mother's Day, briefly, a childless woman founds it in order to provide a corrective to the overemphasis on men's political achievements. And it becomes, right, Mm. this very merched holiday very quickly. Mm -hmm. And she ends up spending her entire life savings trying to get it removed from our national calendars. It's an amazing story. (laughs) She's like, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. This is terrible. (laughs) She literally tosses a Mother's Day brunch salad Uh, in protest that there are actually Mother's Day brunches, even in the 1920s. And so I think about that, and I think about how this really beautiful thing that started as a way to celebrate the under-celebrated actually becomes mainstream. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's right, what feels so untrue to her. And so one of, like, the most practical things I'm taking away from having written this book is the idea that, like, what we celebrate really matters, Mm -hmm. Um, And in some ways Mm -hmm. and in some places, motherhood has been over-celebrated or celebrated so much to the detriment of other achievements, Mm -hmm. other tiny victories, um, other milestones in a Mm -hmm. woman's life. And so I think one of the easiest ways that we can start like living into this like someone other than a mother identity on a day-to-day level is just start paying attention to the less shiny bits of a life well-lived. Mm -hmm. Um, To start sending the casserole when someone has had like a highly anxious day um, or to celebrate um, that, yay, you named a need with joy and freedom today. That's not the same thing as birthing a baby, but Lord, I'm going to like bear witness to it um, and send you a tiny kazoo gif. Like, right, there are like all of these ways, I think, that whatever your parenting status is, you can begin to Mm -hmm. notice in your own life the things you want to be celebrated for but haven't been and start practicing that um, Mm self-love toward yourself, witnessing yourself as a non-anxious presence. But then also we... We do this. We do this um, beautiful work for other women um, when Mm -hmm. we say, "Look, I know everyone um, is celebrating Cindy for sending her birth announcement out over like the intracolleague email, um, but I know you, Debbie, um, wrote a book, Mm -hmm. or 
or had a hard conversation with your dad, right? It doesn't have to be these huge, big things, but Mm -hmm. can Mm -hmm. we start to generate some enthusiasm for them in a way that we've like overplayed marriage, motherhood, and mortgages? And Mm -hmm. and I think that's, that's, I think, the easiest, um, most delightful takeaway I am trying to practice having written the book Mm -hmm. is can I celebrate the things in my own life those less shiny milestones of growing up that feel really important and mm-hmm. that I don't want to miss. Yeah. And I think being able to do that without taking away, as we've talked about, because I do feel like a lot of times what when I feel like I see women celebrated for certain things, there's like, like one common pushback is, oh, I wish I had time as, you know, it must be nice to have enough time to write a book. You know, I have to, stay up late with kids or get up early which with is kind kids of a whatever, backhanded is, compliment it's right? such a backhanded compliment because it's kind of like get, I feel you're like that not doing anything else with your yeah. time must exactly. be nice must be nice to get to go out to eat on a Thursday you know like and I mean like, there's yeah, just a lot of it is, it is. thank you <laughs> <laughs> yeah it strikes me Erin that like the kind of celebrations both big and small I mean small who's to say what's a small celebration but celebrating milestones and moments beyond marriage, motherhood, and mortgages. It takes, it it requires knowing people and knowing their lives and what, what matters to them and what's hard for them and like knowing their family Mm -hmm. history and knowing what they're working on. I wonder if sometimes like, yeah, the intercolleague email goes out about Cindy's birth announcement because it's just an easy public thing that doesn't mm-hmm. actually require getting to know Cindy very well or like even how she's experiencing this new experience. It's like, we just know that this is a thing we celebrate, but I, right. I really love the idea of, yeah, what we choose to celebrate communicates a value of all these other moments of our lives that are beyond that script. And again, right, it gives people an imagination, a blueprint for lots of different ways to live a good life. And you're right. I think a lot of the assumption that women will become mothers, in particular biological mothers, um, is, is a failure of imagination. And it doesn't mean if you do that, you're not imaginative or creative. Um, it just means that that, that is that – is, still in many communities, the expected path for women. Mm-hmm. And again, the more I think we hear stories um, of how people are making meaning in other ways, mm-hmm. it just benefits all of us to say, mm-hmm. okay, why wouldn't we want like an ecosystem mm-hmm. um, to flourish in lots of different ways? We need all kinds of kinds to thrive. It actually benefits us to be a community of more heterogene, hetero heterogeneous community than it does um, to all do the same thing. Thank you so much, Erin, for your time and for a great conversation. Yes. Thank you so much. It was great to see you again, Caitlin, and great to see you um, in your beautiful head wrap, Roxy. Oh, thank you. Yeah. For, um, for all the podcast listeners who can't hear it, sure, can't sure. see it. I mean, but yes, thank you so much for being here. It really appreciate it, and mm-hmm. we all obviously have a lot of things to say about this topic. So, thank you so much for having me. Really yes. appreciate thank you. it. Thank you, absolutely. Okay.
I loved what Aaron said about, you know, we, we sometimes are tempted to think of having children as a bulwark against loneliness in old age. Right. When in fact, based on this report that Aaron was talking about, it's actually friendship that keeps people from loneliness in old age. So this is the second episode in a row. I'm going to bring up how we need to make a Golden Girls Pact. Yes. Florida, here we come. Well, it might be underwater by then. (laughs) Colorado, here we come. We're not retiring in Florida. I feel like they have enough people who are of an older generation as it is. The Midwest. We can return (laughs) to your homeland. They got some lakes. A lot of wheat. A lot of wheat. A lot of lakes. What else do you need in your golden years with your golden girls? Maybe a golden boyfriend. Mm. I sometimes still think that maybe I'll like find a companion (laughs) in an elder care facility. It happens. I've seen it happen in in Hollywood. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.